0: In the bulletin, or best yet, in your Bibles, God's word says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth in these next few moments and the meditations of all of our hearts in here would be pleasing in your sight. We ask and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. Go ahead and be seated. I realize that I didn't get a chance to introduce myself. I know many of you, but some of you guys might not have met me before. I haven't met you. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here of Esper Chico along with Brian Laws who you haven't seen today because Brian this is officially the first Sunday of his sabbatical. So um, he is going to be gone for 3 months although we're going to see him here and there. Has he been good this week? He hasn't like emailed any of y'all and like tried to like do work or say that he's going to Okay, good. I'm not seeing anybody cuz you have to keep him accountable, right? You guys know Brian. He's going to try to jump back in and do stuff, and we've got to say, no, bro, rest, rest, rest. So keep him on his best behavior. But in the meantime, um, like Jordan helped me today, I really want to tag some of our worship leaders, some of our ruling elders, some of our deacons to be helping uh, lead worship with me while Brian's absent. So I hope that that'll be a good thing for you to see and benefit from the gifts of other folks other than just me uh, as they lead our time of worship together. So jumping into the text today, Romans 8, 1 through 4, as we just read, I, I kind of want to start with a, a, a little bit of a remembrance of when I was a student in seminary, which feels like just yesterday, but really was a long time ago. Um, I lived in St. Louis, Missouri, and over the course of four and a half years, I think I was visited by... One, two, three different Mormon missionary couples. And then one group, like large group of Jehovah's Witnesses that came and met with me for a few weeks at a time. Um, And I lived in probably three or four different houses throughout my time in St. Louis. So I don't know what it was, but I was like a magnet for Mormon missionaries. Not the same ones. uh, Different groups that came from all over. They found me wherever I wound up in the city and we had some very, very interesting conversations. Always friendly, but interesting nonetheless. And one of the things that I was able to kind of discern after the second or third visit from a different group of uh, Mormon missionaries was that there was a strategy they all seemed to kind of have when they found out that I was a Christian. It seemed like the approach was to try to emphasize that we were really the same. Oh, you're a Christian? Well, we, we kinda are too. Like we, we read the Bible, we talk about Jesus, like we're, we're really the same, except we happen to have some more like specialized, advanced knowledge that we wanna share with you. And this happened over and over and over again, and the Jehovah's Witness group actually did the same thing too. So it sort of seemed like the approach of some of these groups that send door-to-door kind of evangelists out. But what I discovered is there was something that I could bring up very early on in the conversation that would totally derail that strategy. I could bring up the Trinity, and I could say that as a Christian, I was someone who worshiped one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that was just like slamming on the brakes (laughs) for the conversation that I'd have with some of these folks. Because if you're familiar with theology of uh, those that are LDS or even Jehovah's Witness, they are very, very against the idea that the God we worship um, is Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit very, very against the idea that Jesus would be fully God. And so this whole strategy of trying to say that we were really the same would fall apart pretty quickly when I brought up the Trinity. I uh, imagine some of you guys have had conversations with folks in that same boat before too, and you know that they can be very spirited affairs, and more often than not, what happens is that the arguments about the Trinity come to these handful of what we might call proof text. So the classic examples of Bible scriptures that tell us about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God and three persons. A place that this often comes from, you could say, is John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. That's usually the place these conversations go is thinking about how to interpret that or understand it. Or maybe even a a place like um, Colossians 1 where we're told that Jesus is someone in whom the fullness of deity dwells. That sometimes is the place that those conversations go to. But what I've discovered over time is that it's actually the implicit text about the Trinity that might be the ones that are most effective when having those conversations with someone who's a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness. And what I mean by implicit is that they're the places in the Scripture that don't spell out the doctrine of the Trinity just um, fully and completely, but they hint at it. They, 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 They hint at something going on that's deeper, that makes you say, huh, something's happening here that's beyond just my usual understanding. So one of the places you see this, uh, Genesis chapter one, the very beginning of the Bible where we're told that God on the sixth day, he makes human beings and he says, let us make male and female in our own image. Us, our. Why would the singular God use plural pronouns? Or we could fast forward to uh, the New Testament. Luke 17, Jesus has just healed this group of 10 lepers. And on their way to make purification at the temple, they begin to realize that their skin is healing even as they go. Their disease has been taken away by Jesus. And it says that one of the lepers runs back to Jesus and he falls on his face before Christ and he begins to worship him. And you'd think That Jesus would say, get up, get up, dude. You're not supposed to give me worship. Give God the worship. But here's what Jesus says instead. He says, I healed 10 of you. Shouldn't there be nine others here worshiping me? What's going on there? Again, this isn't a place where you have this very laid out, detailed doctrine of the Trinity, but you have this hint of something's going on that suggests that Jesus himself is God. There's other examples of this all throughout the New Testament and the Old, but the reason I'm bringing it up today is because the passage we read is one of those implicit scriptures about the Trinity, where we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all working in tandem for the same end. And no one could ever say that Romans 8, 1 through 4 is a exhaustive, complete description of the doctrine of Trinity, but you can say that it's one of those many hints all throughout the Bible that when you stack them all up together, you get a clear picture that the God we worship is one God in three persons. Now, the subject matter of Romans 8 is the gospel. That is that word that means good news, that we talk about ad nauseum here at Vespers, and that's a good thing, we should. But it's the good news about the grace of Jesus that's given to us that makes us forgiven and righteous in the sight of God the Father. And what this is going to tell us is that gospel That gospel that we sing about, that we talk about ad nauseum, that we read books about, gospel-centered this, gospel-centered that, that gospel is a work of the triune God. With the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all with a vital role to play. Each person of the Trinity has a crucial role part in this drama of redemption. And the, the reason I'm making such a big deal about that is because I think sometimes as Christians, we can, we can sort of focus on one person of the Trinity as the end-all be-all when it comes to why we're excited about our salvation. We'll say, the gospel is all the work of the Son, or the gospel is all the work of the Holy Spirit, and that's all who we talk about, or the gospel is all the work of the Father. But the reality is... The beauty of the gospel is that it is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in this beautiful collaboration to bring about the work of your salvation. So that if you're a mature believer reflecting on your own salvation, what God has done to save you, it should bring you to a place of saying, well, in the words of the old hymn, praise, praise the Father. Praise the Son and praise the Spirit three in one. If I had to say what the big idea for today's sermon is, it's that. I want you to be a Christian that's able to see the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all together when you reflect on your salvation. And I want you to be a person that is unmistakably committed to worshiping The triune God. Because that's your God. That's my God. That's who he is in his essence. And sometimes we want to simplify things so much that we begin to speak and sing and talk as if our God isn't Trinitarian. But he is. And the gospel, your gospel, proves it. So, Let's see this in Romans 8, 1 through 14. I've got kind of a breakdown that's going to help us today. It is not perfect, this breakdown, but it's still helpful, even though it's not absolutely perfect. And it's this. The Father, God the Father, is who initiates the work of the gospel. God the Son is who accomplishes the work of the gospel. And God, the Holy Spirit, is who applies the work of the gospel to your life. That's how we're going to kind of organize this to think about it. Like I said, not a perfect breakdown. There's some overlap that that doesn't, you know, give witness to. But it's going to be good enough for us today to kind of sort of organize our thoughts. And as you see up here on the slide, we're going to start with God the Father who initiates the work. Now, I've got verse 3 up here. Because there's a phrase in there that should jump out to you because of the contrast with what we talked about last week. Well, that, that assumes you were here last week or heard the sermon last week, so I'll, I'll fill you in. What we did last week is that we spent our entire time looking at one verse. The first verse we read today, Romans 8.1. therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We, we just sat on that phrase, no condemnation the whole time. And we talked about how in Christ we are people that when we stand before the throne, the judgment seat of God, we will hear him say, no condemnation. I am not holding your sins against you. Amen. So we reflected at length about what no condemnation means for us. However, when we continue to read through the text and we get to verse three here, we see that there is a condemnation that still will happen. We're not condemned in Christ, but something else most certainly will be condemned. Tell me, based on what you read up there, what it is. Sin. I hear hear the S sound coming from this. Sounds like a bunch of snakes out there. He will condemn sin in the flesh. In fact, not he will condemn sin in the flesh. He has condemned sin in the flesh. God the Father will not condemn those who are in Christ, but he most certainly will hold accountable sin and brokenness and wickedness. He will condemn it. He has condemned it already in Christ. And this is a good thing. I know that we, we, it, we live in a culture that hates condemnation of any way, shape, or form. And yet, we would all agree, I would think, that mo- the most heinous, ugly, barbaric crimes need to be held accountable. A judge that had a defendant come in that had just uh, done something unspeakably evil, we would be outraged if that judge just tossed out the case and didn't hold any accountability for that. We want God to condemn sin, to condemn wickedness and evil. Oh man, and I'm smelling the skunk now. Wow. You know, Caleb just told me that he was walking past the church this morning and there was a skunk that got hit on the road right out here and he thought to himself, I wonder if that stink is going to swaft into the the church building later today. I think now we have uh, the answer to that. So, uh, sorry about that, guys. Uh, at least now you know it's not one of your neighbors that smells like a skunk. It uh, was the one that was hit on the road out there. Uh, but sorry, I totally got distracted uh, talking about the Trinity and then the skunk smell, and I just totally lost my train of thought. So let me try to bring it back. We want God to condemn what is evil and punish what is, what is wicked and wrong. This is a good thing. This must happen. But then it gets us to a place of tension because we've got the holy God who will condemn sin and evil. But he's also the God who introduced himself to us very early in the Bible as the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. When he makes his first public introduction, when he reveals his glory to Moses, that's what he says about himself. So, He's going to hold sin accountable, but he also longs to see people saved out of the bondage of sin. How how can he do both those things without compromising either of them? That's what we call the gospel. That, that third way where God is able to uphold his justice, condemning sin, but at the same time offer grace and mercy to any who would, who would commit themselves to Christ in faith. And so when I talk about the father initiating the gospel, this is what I mean. That tension between those, those parts of himself push him to create this way by which sin will be held accountable, but people will be saved. And he decides to send the son Jesus to make this happen. Now, talking about the son could feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves and we're moving on to the next part of the son accomplishing. We're actually still here, the father initiates, because I want you to see in verse three, look at how this is worded. This is the second half of it. It says, by sending his own The emphasis here is on the father releasing his boy, his, what does John 3 say, only begotten son. The emphasis here is on the heart-rending choice that the father makes to offer up his son for the sins of the world. Those of you who are moms and dads in here, tell me you don't feel that to your core. Some of you that have just had children for the first time, the idea of of letting go your child, of sending them into harm's way. I'm not a parent, but I've talked to enough of you guys to know that almost every parent, between the choice of sending their child to a certain death or offering themselves up to death they would choose giving themselves, sacrificing themselves over their child, right? Am I crazy for thinking that? And yet here we have in the gospel, the father who is willing to make that gut-wrenching choice to send his own son so that you and I might live. That's how the father initiates the work of the gospel. Let's move to the next one though. The Son who accomplishes. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son, which we just talked about, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Let's pause at that statement, in the likeness of sinful flesh. When we talk about the Son accomplishing salvation, more often than not, our mind immediately goes to the crucifixion and the resurrection, as it should. That's kind of the climax of the work he accomplishes. But it starts before that, as this verse shows us. It starts when the Son takes on the likeness of sinful flesh and enters into our world. He takes on a body. He takes on our earthly existence. He enters into our life and all the humanness that comes with that. Imagine, I was saying this up in paradise this morning. Think of the life that the son of God lived before the incarnation, He exists in eternal glory and blessedness in the heavenly places. He's he's in perfect, joyful fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He has everything. And yet he gives it up to enter into our world, to step into flesh, and to exist in the way that we exist for a time being. Which means, and this is gonna sound silly to you guys, but it really is kind of interesting to think about. It means that Jesus, for the first time, experienced what it was like to be hungry or thirsty. He experienced what it was like to, to have something to do, but be so exhausted and tired, he could hardly keep his eyes open. He, he knew what now what it meant to be cold at night, Or hot during the day when he's working and sweat is pouring down into his eyes. He knew what it was to to have like an itch that you couldn't scratch no matter where you try to scratch yourself. Or even maybe what it means to be sick, to get strep throat, to get a headache. All of these things the son willingly does to enter into our world. And why? To accomplish the work of the gospel. If sin is going to be condemned in the flesh, like we've talked about it being, the person who pays for it needs to be in the flesh too. It doesn't work outside of that. So Jesus enters into the likeness of our flesh so that when he hangs on the cross and says it is finished, the wrath of God is being poured down on sin in the flesh. Meaning, you and I don't have to pay for it like we would otherwise. If we are committed to him in faith, if we are in Christ, now we can be forgiven because in his flesh, he took that punishment. He took that wrath. Or to look at it another way, Jesus enters into our flesh and even before the crucifixion, even before the resurrection, he's walking through life 33 years of perfectly obeying the law of God. Perfectly living the righteous life required of human beings. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of the frailty of this human body, Christ perfectly lives the life that we are called to. And on that moment that he dies and then raises again, he gives us that perfect life to claim as our own. The phrase that we saw in the scripture in verse four, I'll read it for you, is this. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Because Jesus in the flesh fulfills the righteous requirement of the law, now it means that he gives it to us so that we too might be able to say the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in our lives. Theologians call this the beautiful exchange. Over here, Jesus takes on our sin, our debt, and is condemned for it. But over here he gives us His righteousness, His perfection, His fulfillment of the law so that we might claim it. And that you're forgiven and cleansed, but you're also made holy and blameless in the sight of the Father, all because Jesus the Son, has entered in to sin, excuse me, the likeness of sinful flesh, that's important to say, to accomplish the work of the gospel. The final piece. I don't smell the skunk anymore. I was about to amend my sermon to make it shorter, but now the skunk smell is gone. We can finish out. We can talk about this last one. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one. He is the one who applies the work of the Gospel. Verse two is the place that we see this initially. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now to make sense of how that is the application of the gospel. Let's step back for a second. Let's think of this. How is it that the work of the son, what he did over there, has any relevance to who I am over here? I mean, his atonement on the cross, his resurrection, that happened in Palestine thousands of years ago. How does that now connect to me? That's where the work of the Holy Spirit comes in. He's who takes what the Father initiated, what the Son accomplished. He takes that and he tethers it to me. He stamps it upon my life. He embeds it within me. He makes it mine so that the Holy Spirit is like the link between what Christ has accomplished and all the benefits therein. The Holy Spirit takes it and says, here, Josh, I'm putting it within you. I'm linking you to Christ so that you could be talked about to be in him while he is in you. It's the Holy Spirit that makes that possible. Otherwise, the work of the Father, the work of the Son, it would be beautiful, it would be wonderful, there would be songs written about it and books written about it, but it would be over there. The Holy Spirit is the one that takes it from over there and makes it inward in here. That's how he applies it. And the way we know that he's done that, well, that's where verse 2 comes in. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We know that he's applying it to us because we are beginning to change. We're beginning to walk different, to talk different, to think different. We're beginning to see that the things that used to hold us in bondage are now loosening their grip on us. And we don't have to fall into the chains of sin anymore. It's not a foregone conclusion anymore. Slowly but surely, we're experiencing freedom. And yeah, I still struggle. I still fall. Sometimes I fall stupendously and stupidly on my face. And yet, I know that the gospel truths are percolating within me and they're beginning to change my life. Here's what the Spirit does. He takes all that Jesus has done, all the Father initiated, things like no condemnation for those in Christ, things like the righteous fulfillment of the law in you, he takes that and he stamps it upon you. It's, it's like the label that you wear now. You've, you've got the that that gaudy marker name tag on you that says not condemned. You've got another one over here that says holy and blameless in the sight of the father. The Holy spirit puts those name tags on you and says, that's true of you now. But this is the beautiful part. As you wear those name tags, you start to reflect that truth. Before you you didn't really look like somebody who's not condemned. You look like a person that should be condemned But now, because you're wearing that name tag, you're starting to walk in a way that actually reflects the truth of that. You're starting to think in a way that that harkens back to, wait a second, this is who I am now. I'm going to think like that. I'm going to speak like that. I'm going to talk to others like that. The reality the Holy Spirit puts upon you about who you are in Christ begins to change the way you live. That's what I'm really trying to say. And so that we get to verse four. It starts with, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled on us, but then it says, we who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Spirit is testifying that he's applying those gospel truths to you because you're walking in a way that slowly but surely is reflecting it. That's what he does. I praise his name for it. I hope you notice that I'm, when I talk about the Holy Spirit, I'm saying he, him, what he does. That's how the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit. And I, I usually, I know you've heard me say this before, but I like to make a point of it. We, we make a, a grave error when we speak of the Holy Spirit as it as some disembodied force like in Star Wars. The Holy Spirit is personal and every time he's referred to in the scripture, it's as he or him or his. So it's important for us to know that and important for us to be able to say that his work is the application of the gospel to our lives. There's so much more we could say about the work of the Holy Spirit and don't worry, we are going to say it because Romans eight, I'll say this again next week probably, Romans eight of all the chapters of the Bible is the one that speaks about the Holy Spirit the most. Did you know that? Not first Corinthians 12 or 14 with all the spiritual gifts talked about, it's Romans eight. And he's spoken about in powerful, strong ways about the way that he leads us in newness of life. And we're gonna talk, we're gonna talk about that a lot. But for today, we're gonna leave it here because, again, the main idea for us is to see the interplay of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this work of the gospel. Showing how it's the Father that initiates, the Son that accomplishes, and the Spirit that applies. And I said this once before, but I'm gonna repeat it as a way to conclude. The reason that I've chosen to kind of go this direction with the sermon, the big takeaway, the what's the point of it all, is because I think that the American church is one that slowly but surely has lost its grip on the doctrine of the Trinity. And if you polled most believers coming out of church to talk about the God that they worship, they would would describe a God that is not Trinitarian and have a hard time thinking about who it is that they actually are worshiping and following. So I want you I want me to be people who are very clear about the fact that our God is one God in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. I want that to season our prayers. I want it to season our worship. And I want it to season our understanding like we talked about today of the gospel. The thing that we celebrate and that we sing about, the gospel is a trinitarian work. Don't forget it. Let's pray. Father, we pray to you in the name of the Son and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you that together... You and all three persons uh, coordinated in such a beautiful way to make this wondrous work of the gospel that scripture tells us that the angels longed to look into. They were so excited about what you were up to and what you were doing and now we get to be the recipients of it, the celebrants of it, those who are saved by it. God, set our mind to see the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit, and to know who it is that we worship. You are our one God who exists in three persons. We pray this to you in the name of Jesus, who you tell us it's in his name you've given us because of his accomplished work that we can pray. We pray in his name, the name of Christ, to you, O Father through the power of the Spirit, amen.